As we come together on this Lord's Day, which we also consider uh, honoring our mothers, uh, the mother of us all is the church. And that's what Paul says as he addresses uh, the mother that we all have who have nurtured us, who have birthed us in her, uh, in her presence and have nurtured us at her breast. And we are now here gathered together in one as Christ's church. I do have a Mother's story, a Mother's Day story, though, to tell you that is relevant, I think, um, because I get up with fear and trembling to the pulpit today uh, for more reasons than one. Um, as a couple months ago, my mom was so excited when we went over to her house for dinner, which we try to do each Monday night, and she wanted to show me something. She ushers me back to her computer where she brings back up the stream service from the day before. And she brings it to a, a spot where the sound guy forgot to mute my microphone during the hymn. And I was blurting out, thinking that no one is hearing me, but it's very loud on the streaming. When you might not have heard me, they did. And she just thought that was the most hilarious thing. I was so embarrassed. I still think about that, and I turn red, because it was not anything to be worthy to be heard. And as I look, uh, I'm not going to tell you who the sound guy was, but uh, who was recording that particular incident and missed the mute button, uh, but I do have some fear this morning as I sing before you with the Lord. So, um, with that in mind, let's turn our attention to Matthew 27. Beginning at verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 10 of this incident before Jesus' death, uh, something that uh, I hope we'll, we can learn from. Hear now the word of the Lord. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away to be delivered and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor, then Judas... His betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. And then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together, and they bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then it was fulfilled, which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Our gracious Father, teach us of the true ways of repentance and lead us in the path of righteousness for your name's sake. We pray that you would bear upon us the truth of the word today and you bring forth the fruit meet for true repentant lives to the praise and the glory of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe seated. <clears throat> we read about this very weighty and sad end of Judas's life. But we might read in this context and consider was Judas repentant in the end of this? 
having realized his horrible mistake, he was remorseful. The scripture said he was sorrowful. And he confessed even that he had betrayed innocent blood, took and threw the pieces of silver that had been hired to betray him back into the temple. And then he went and hanged himself. Yet this did not come to full repentance. With all of the remorse, with the sorrow, with the, uh, the confession and the self-deprecation and with even ending his life, uh, this was not repentance. Now that is a pretty sobering thought to think of when we consider what is the difference between what the Bible calls a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow that leads us to repentance and yet, with actions like this, how can we say that Judas was not truly repentant? He seemed fairly sincere in this. And I think the, the nuances that we can now consider before us can be helpful to our life of repentance and faith as we continue to walk in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know from the Scriptures that Judas was a condemned man. So we have to take the Scripture, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we have to take that at face value and believe it. In the previous chapter, Jesus at the Lord's Supper and sitting around in the upper room with him, he revealed to the disciples that one of them, one of the twelve, would betray him. And then he says in verse 24, The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it has been written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Now when we think about the Lord God of heaven, the God of the universe, the one who knows all things, from the, he knows it from the end, from the beginning, and is all sovereign in all of these details, and if he knows what would happen and said it would be better for that man not to even have been created, not to have even been born, then something more severe is awaiting for him after his death. In John 17, after Jesus, Judas now leaves, Jesus is still in the upper room of the disciples, and right before he leads them out to the garden where will be his final moments of prayer, arrest, and then uh, his crucifixion. He prays in what we have termed a great high priestly prayer because this prayer he prays to God the Father, but he prays it out loud so that his disciples can hear it. <clears throat> and he says to his Father, while I was with them in the world, I kept them by your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Now, how would it be if you were in the presence of the disciples and you were the one that was going to betray the Lord and he prayed that prayer saying that I've kept them all except for that person so that the Scripture, the prophecy might be fulfilled we have actions and testimony of the disciples in Acts chapter 1, which I, I find intriguing. In Acts 1, we have the 11 apostles gathered in the upper room with others there at that time. But the 11 were gathered. 
And there were only 11 apostles now because Judas went and hanged himself. And the brethren of the apostles gathered here and said, Men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit before spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained part in their ministry, Now this man purchased a field of wages for iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and his entrails falled out. And it became known to all dwelling in Jerusalem, so the field is called in their own language, a kaldama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. The apostles felt compelled by the Spirit and led providentially by him to replace Judas so that another can take his office in fulfillment of the prophecy of which Jesus spoke about and the prophecy that now that they were aware of that spoke of Judas. And again, what they do is they reference this event That was prophesied of Judas back in Psalm 109. It's not long ago that that was a psalm of our mourning. And as I'm reading Psalm 109, these words of the prophecy concerning Judas were weighty. If you read the curses of Psalm 109 and realize that the specifics of this psalm is talking about Judas, it all adds all the more gravitas to it. Let me just read you a portion of that. As the psalmist is praying in his own context, under his own sufferings, but yet really in the prophecy that would come true and fulfilled in Jesus and and Judas, the psalmist then says, Set a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. You're thinking right now about Judas, right? When he is judged, let him be found guilty, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. That's the passage that the disciples quote now as they felt compelled to replace Judas with uh, one that would be another another twelfth disciple. Let his children be fatherless, the psalmist continues. Let his wife be a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek bread from Uh, their bread also from desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has and let strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off and in that generation following, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of their fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them continually be before the Lord, that they may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Because he did not show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken heart. And it continues. I'm not sure there's a stronger imprecatory psalm than Psalm 109. It is one of the most strong Language, most condemning psalm in the scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit in prophesying about Judas. Can you imagine if someone were prophesying about you in this way? If someone were praying about you in this way, 
As David was obviously, or the, the writer of the song was in the context of, of, of this, and, and yet there's a fulfillment. These psalms are still preserved for us as, as we know we have enemies. And, 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 and how, were, how would you like to be prayed for in this way? The disciples were compelled now in the upper room there in Acts 1 to to replace Judas. I find that interesting and intriguing. Um, And they said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which of these two, they had two men that they had, that you have chosen. In other words, they had already assumed and knew that God had chosen to replace Judas in fulfillment of this prophecy And now they are praying which one it might be. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles, now rounding it out to twelve. Now when James died very early in his ministry, we know very little about the ministry of James, one of the inner circle of Peter, James, and John, that James. He died very early uh, in the book of Acts. They did not feel compelled to replace James, but for Judas, they did. That initial number of apostles and disciples from which the ministry of the kingdom of the church would begin represented or at least identified with the 12 tribes of Israel, and collectively they are representing the whole number of God's elect through every age. Therefore, Judas had to be replaced. He was not among them. So we see from Scripture that Judas was a condemned man, but we see in his actions in a way that we might have judged him as truly repentant. And the Scripture itself says he was remorseful uh, and and even confessed Jesus is innocent, but then he was not. He didn't bring it all the way home. I think that's where we can learn. I want to preach this morning to you about the difference between a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow that leads us to repentance because that is the realm in which we need to be living. And too often times I'm afraid that that we do not have the gravitas of our sins and we own it like we should and perhaps we have occasions, which I'm sure we all do, of just merely exhibiting worldly sorrow. So if you would, and turn back in your scriptures to that passage we read earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, it is there that I want to take up the majority of the rest of our time this morning. 2 Corinthians 7 is very instructive to us. Here is a context that will give us a character of what it looks like, feels like, sounds like, uh, in terms of the character of godly repentance. I'm going to read here, beginning at verse 8. We'll read this passage again. I want you now to be thinking about what is the character, truly, of repentance as opposed to just being worldly remorseful. Beginning at verse 8. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little while. Now I rejoice that you... Not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. 
For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, and all these things you proved yourself to be clear in this manner. What we see in this passage is really the the character of true repentance. It has a shape to it, it has a spirit to it, it has a, a mind to it, it has an attitude about it. And the repentance really is, the the Greek word means a change of mind. And so there is a change in which we have to think about things differently than the way that we have been thinking about them if true repentance is going to come about. There is an attitude adjustment coupled with an action and a direction of change. And that really is the Hebrew word. So if you take the way the Hebrew word, it's this word of return. It's an action word of going and returning, and the Greek word is one of changing of a mind. And putting that together, we have a pretty good picture of what the full-orbed look of repentance is like. I'm going to change my mind about something, and now because of that, I'm going to turn back to God away from the direction I've been heading. But repentance and faith always go together. They're never separate. They are always inseparable, but yet they are not the same thing. They're like two sides of the same coin. You can't merely stop sinning in your life. You have to put off the old man by putting on the new man. And so as you repent, on the one hand you're turning, but you're turning in trust to Jesus. And that has to go along with it. You can't just stop doing a sin. You have to trust Jesus to save you from the power of sin. And so the two are always going together. And what we see in this passage is the character of repentance that evidences itself in a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of spirit, a change of attitude in these Corinthians for their spirit against Paul, which also then changed their action. It was including the entirety and the totality of their being. What we want in our lives are lives characterized by the gospel repentance, gospel faith, not a worldly sorrow. There are times when we fall. There are times when we sin. Yes, we sin frequently. There are times when there have been very grievous sins that have affected people and hurt you and you have harbored things in your life and and there are times when your spirit loses its stability. Occasions when people, even in church, have left themselves wide open and so vulnerable to the enemy that even Satan himself can take advantage of them and use people sitting in the pew as vessels through which he will operate. That's a very sobering thing. You hang on to sin and a life of bitterness and, and you end up not repenting truly, but you're, you're obstinate in your heart and, and you're sitting there in the pew, you open yourself up for even the enemy to use you as a vessel to do his work and you are completely blinded by it. In fact, Paul was telling Timothy, as he leaves Timothy at a very difficult 
ministry in the church of Ephesus, and he's writing this pastoral epistle back to him, the second one, which is notable because this is the last writings that Paul will write. He knew his time was coming. What are some of the last words that you're going to write in a very few short chapters to this young pastor in a very difficult ministry? And he tells him this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. And a servant of the Lord must not strive. In other words, God's minister cannot be striving with people who want to strive with him. A servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive to do his will. And so as Paul is revealing this very important aspect to Timothy's ministry. Don't get caught up in the vortex of, of, of the quarreling, the disputing, and these endless genealogies and those things that do not profit, but actually you're going to have to squelch them. Be gentle, teach, engage in the battle, because there are some people there that the devil himself has taken captive to do his work within the church. And you're going to have to continue patiently ministering. But ultimately, if they're going to come to repentance, it's going to be a gift that God grants. <coughs> if God perhaps will grant them repentance. As we come into 2 Corinthians chapter 7, there's some context here that I'll briefly discuss. Paul was previously writing, um, he wrote them a, a, an epistle, and then he's writing here, and he tells them about something that made them sorrowful in a previous epistle. Something that he was saying as he was chastening them, as he was having to defend his own apostolic ministry, having visited them, and they rebuffed his ministry. And this was a church that he had planted, so he has a sense of a fatherly protection over them, and yet they were just uh, oppressive to him and sent him back with his tail between his legs to Ephesus. And, and here he was writing a, a strong letter to them of great rebuke, and he made them sorrowful. What he was writing to them about, perhaps it was the first epistle that we have. We know that there was also another epistle that we don't have in the scriptures, but the first epistle he was writing to them, and we find that there was a great sin issue going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that they were complacent about. They weren't doing anything about it, yet everybody knew that there was a man who had his father's wife most likely a stepmother, and they just were complacent. And Paul is stingingly having to write them to take care of this matter, as well as they were going to court with each other, as well as they were abusing the Lord's Supper, as well as they were abusing the gifts that God had given them, and on and on and on it went. 
So when we think about what then connects the sorrow that they had with their true repentance, this change of mind that does not lead to regret, we want to understand the context. You know, many times when offenders uh, will sin, and God allows then the consequences of their sin to come upon them, they sometimes regret it. But that's not yet repentance. There are people in just about every congregation of Christians who labor under a great deal of sorrow and regret, who have yet to totally change their minds and their spirit and their attitudes and this godly sorrow that leads to repentance, and they have yet to be liberated and they hang on to things. They hang on to grudges and they hang on to sin or they hang on to their idolatry and their hearts are hard. And they get unhappy. And if they could only come to true repentance, they would be liberated. They would know the peace of God which passeth all understanding. They would know the comfort of the Scriptures and the comfort of the Spirit. They would have this relationship restored where there is Abba, Father, crying out within them. As Paul then reveals to the Corinthians that they had come to that place and it brought him great joy and he hears of, hears of their great joy. And this was a wonderful news that Titus brought to them. Paul was having one of the darkest times in his ministry, having left Ephesus knowing that this Corinthian church had all against him in these unrighteous ways and then Titus brings him news of their repentance. And what a joy, what a release it was for Paul. And yet there were two factors involved that brought about their repentance. The first factor was Paul himself. He confronted them. He said, I made you sorry. And Paul says, on the one hand, I don't regret it. And on the other hand, he says, and I do regret it. <laughs> now, what, what he means by that, he says, I, I don't regret it, but I did regret it. That's the way he felt when he was writing this stinging letter of confrontation to them. This was a hard thing for him to do. As many of you understand, uh, you, you, if you're like me, you dread confrontation. There's only a few people, highly exceptional, that actually thrive on confrontation. I think that's abnormal. I don't think that's good. And, and so if you're in the normality, which I'm assuming that you are, you, you, you hate conf confrontation. You don't like it. It's absolutely critical and necessary. But it's oftentimes why uh, rearing children are, is so difficult, particularly as they get older. Right? Parents with older kids? Because you don't like that confrontation. Um, it's one reason marriages struggle, because the confrontation, you just want to avoid that when it needs to be in a healthy manner. Uh, churches diminish in their spiritual fervor because we don't confront each other over sin like we should. We know what's going on, but it's easier to go talk about it than it is to confront.
And so Paul is revealing this unpleasantness when he says, I did regret it, but I don't regret it. And that's the idea. It was pleasant, unpleasant. It was very distressing to me when I had to write this. But, but now, I don't regret it. I now rejoice. Now, and that's how we always are when we confront someone over their sin and, and then God works in that situation. We rejoice. They rejoice. God rejoices. And this is where Paul was when the news came back to him. Now I rejoice because God had used that letter and I do not regret sending it. That, that's the idea. And one way that is so often used as even a means in our own lives to bring us to a sorrow which leads to repentance is when someone confronts us in our sin lovingly and in a view to the glory of God and for our good. And this is what Paul did, and this is what we need to learn to do in a loving, gracious manner for the sake of God's glory and for the spirit of his church and for his goodness here. Now, oftentimes God uses that, but there's a second factor in this, and this factor is something that is an absolute essential that without it, repentance will never come about, and that second factor is this, that God must grant it. We find three times a particular phrase being used, and they're all the same phrase, all of the same Greek. In verse 9 it says that you sorrowed after a sorrow, after a, a, a godly manner. In verse 10, it says, you had a godly sorrow. Verse 11, a godly sorrow. All three of those phrases are the same Greek. And the Greek expression really is this. You sorrowed according to God. What is it that brings about sorrow in this manner? Sometimes it involves confronting a brother. But that alone will not do. It is the work of God. It is a grace of God. It is God's gracious activity in your life, in my life, in our lives. As he says, per adventure, if God gives them repentance, in that previous chapter I read. See, God is that whom must give repentance. It is a grace of God. And he does not give it to all. It cannot be presumed upon. See, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. And trust and turning your life to follow Jesus is not presumptuous. It's faith. But when we are presumptuous, we are not trusting in God. That really is an act of pride in presuming that God owes us something. See, there's a big difference in presuming that God owes it to us or God will give it, and trusting him, beating our chest, calling out for God's mercy. There's a big difference. In fact, there's an eternal difference between the two. There's an old hymn that is entitled, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior, whose words go like this, Pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry, while on others thou art calling, 
do not pass me by. Let me at thy throne of mercy find sweet relief, kneeling there in deep contrition, help my unbelief. Trusting only in thy merit, would I seek thy face, heal my wounded, broken spirit, save me by thy grace. Now, God doesn't owe it to you. God does not owe you salvation. God does not owe you grace. He does not owe you forgiveness. He does not owe you his mercy. With a spirit of, O Lord, pass me not, O gentle Savior, have mercy upon my soul. That's the spirit of genuine repentant attitude. Now, there is a mystery that can't be explained between our human responsibility and the command to repent and believe the gospel and God's sovereignty that we are going to have to have engaged in our life with His grace to give us the gift that He has commanded. And there's some mystery there. But if there's ever a sorrow that's going to take place in your life or in my life, it will take the activity of God in bringing it to pass. That's true when you came to know Jesus. It's true today as you continue to trust Him. So what is the characteristic now of what this godly sorrow that leads to repentance, what does this look like? And he gives us seven characteristics that I'd like to at least uh, tease out some pretty quickly. Because they're coupled with a person's faith. That if you're walking by faith and not by sight, then this will also be true in your life as you sin and you then continue to walk in faith, not by sight. The first one is what diligence it produced in you. When you came to such a place that God worked in your spirit and he gave you the grace of sorrow and repentance here in a godly manner after according to God, then it worked diligence in you. Before they were indifferent, they were complacent, they, they weren't very diligent. The word is also translated haste, and when Mary, the mother of Jesus, when the, when the angel came and spoke to her, and told her of the news of what was going to happen. He said, and also Elizabeth is, is pregnant. And right after the angel leaves Mary, it says, and Mary made to the hills country in haste. That's the same word. Diligence. Earnest diligence to the point that they get a move about it. They make haste to get things settled. They, they want to get this taken care of. There's an attitude about it. There's a spirit about it. There is an action that follows. People begin taking spiritual initiative again. They become aggressive about their relationship with God to, to satisfy God in this way. Josiah was an example of this. When he has the, the great revival, his heart was moved. They found the word of the Lord and, and he repented. And then he went to action and cleaning out all of the high places and the, the kingdom. And he just went to work. He made haste because his spirit moved him to action in a manner of godly repentance. 
He showed diligence. There was earnestness. There was no complacency. There was no slowness in his spirit. He grabbed it by the horns and he was taking care of it. That is one of the characteristics of godly repentance. That's what it looks like when someone gets earnest about their spiritual life. When they have fallen into sin or they're not right with God, and then God brings them the awareness and they repent. It's a seriousness about getting things cleaned up. There's an intensity to it, and that is a gift from God. The second one here, it says, what clearing of yourselves? What clearing of yourselves? Now, this is, an, this is a word that is often found in a court of law that when someone is accused, then they give an answer for themselves. And it is an answer of generally in that particular setting of self-justifying, trying to show that the charges are false. It is a word that you can, you'll understand it even by the Greek word. The word in the Greek is apologia, from which we get the word apology. Now, apology is a, we, we talk about apologetics. Apologetics is defending the truth, defending the gospel. That's what we think of when we think of apologetics. But here's the situation. What if those charges were true. This is the illustration that, that David gives us in Psalm 51 when he sinned with Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet comes and confronts David and David now repents. And, and in the opening words of Psalm 51, he says, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. There is no self-justification with David. So here the, the spirit of clearing yourself in this way, this word clearing, this apologia, is not that you are self-justifying and trying to excuse, but you want to justify God and His righteousness and what He has said. It literally is the opposite direction. This is what God is waiting to hear from you and me. He doesn't want to hear you giving an answer for yourself. He doesn't want to hear you defending yourself. He doesn't want to hear you justifying yourself. He doesn't want to hear you blame-shifting to somebody else. It is not an apologia for you, but it is an answer from you to justify God. So that God will be justified. See, God all along has been saying, this is sin. This is sin. And the whole time, I'm failing to hear God. I'm failing to repent uh, as though God's word is not so. See? And when I repent, 
I come to justify God by acknowledging, God, your word was right. I was wrong. And in the clearing of this matter, you're actually clearing God. You're justifying God, not yourself. And that's the Spirit. See, David in Psalm 51 owns it all. He fully acknowledges it. He doesn't hedge it about. He doesn't cloud it up. He doesn't whitewash it. He owns it all. Because God had given him the gift of repentance. And this is what it looks like. If you've been ever falsely accused of something, of a very serious matter, and, and I have, so I know what this feels like, you know the rise in your spirit that you want to clear yourself in the matter. Are, are, you, are you following me? It's that same kind of rise in your spirit, wanting to clear yourself of your, in this matter, and of your innocency, that now is that which you are doing for the sake of God and clearing His name because of your sin. Are you, does that make sense? This is the same spirit you have in clearing God and confessing your sin to justify God, to justify His word, to justify His confrontation to you. It's the same earnestness that all the blame will be attached where the blame is rightly to go. Right here. When there is repentance given by God, there is a zeal that wants to make a case for the righteousness of God. One of the things that we need to learn to do in following David's example here is we need to tell God he is righteous in the times when we are confronted with our sin. God, you're righteous. When, when things come about in our life that we don't like and don't, things don't go our way, we need to get on our knees and say, God, this did not go my way, but I commit myself into your hands. You're righteous. You know what's best. I resign myself to your goodness. See, God wants to hear of his attributes when you are at your lowest, and that's justifying God. Here, David is showing us how the problem is with us and not with God. No self-justification, but God-justification. The third, the third one is what indignation. Now, this is being intensely displeased. Now, when he's getting right with God, when a person is getting right with God, and he is now truly uh, repentant, who is he displeased with? Is he displeased with his brother that is sitting across the church from him? Is he displeased with God? Is he displeased with the devil? Is he displeased with kind of everybody in general? Is that who he is displeased with? Who is he displeased with? Himself. Himself. That's the character of godly repentance. All of his displeasure displeasure is turned inward. There's a self-outrage because of his sin and what it's done in his relationship with God and what it has done 
and bringing shame on Christ. He's not shifting the blame to others. He's just owning it all. The fourth, the fourth one here is what fear. What fear. Now, this primarily doesn't mean the fear of God's judgment, though we don't rule that out, and there is an aspect that's true. But for a Christian, there is a sense when we come to this genuine repentance, there is a fearful kind of anxiety that when you realize that we have something is broken inside of us, and we need to get this right, and it's not right, there is this fear of a ruptured relationship with our God. And that's the kind, it brings kind of an anxiety. It's something that is very disturbing inside of us. And there is this, this lack of peace because our relationship with God has been ruptured and we are not satisfied there. In fact, in Psalm 51, David is, is crying out to God, God, restore a right spirit within me. Restore the joy of thy salvation. Do not take your spirit from me, O God. He's not talking about losing his salvation. He's talking about the fellowship that was destroyed, and he knew it, and he did not want that to continue. Reverend James Webster was reporting on observations that he was witness to in the revivals under Jonathan Goforth. And he says this, which helps illustrate this fear. He says, what oppresses the thought of the penitent as he was observing these revivals. He says, what oppresses the thought of the penitent is not any thought of future punishment but their minds are full of thoughts of unfaithfulness, of ingratitude to the Lord who has redeemed them, of the heinous sins of trampling on his love. This is which has pierced them to the heart and moves them to their moral being. This relationship with our God has been broken. We are not as grateful as we should be. Our sin has grieved him deeply. Does this bother us? If it does, this is evidence of godly repentance. Number five, what vehement desire. This is that longing for that relationship to be restored. It's a fervent desire to be right with God. And they have missed now what they have lost and there's this desire to get it back. The sixth one is what zeal. The zeal is something that really is a, is a fervent spirit that takes a stand and takes action that goes along with it. Zeal is an action-oriented word. And number seven, what vindication. He says, in all these things you prove yourself clear in this matter. What vindication. This word is the word for revenge. It's not the way that we might think of revenge. It has this idea of an act of justice to make sure justice is done. And the justice is done by my repentance and getting things right with those that I have wronged. It's like when Zacchaeus comes down from the tree and the thing he says to the Lord, Lord, if I have extorted any money, I will repay it fourfold. This is the whole idea that there is restitution and willingness to, 
to have and to give this, to get it right with God. That's the most important thing. I want to be right with God by being right with my neighbor. Now, these are the characteristics of true godly sorrow that leads to repentance. It starts with God granting it by grace, and sometimes he uses people to confront us which is very unpleasant for us when we have to do the confronting, and it's very unpleasant for us when we have to receive the confrontation. So let's just get that one out on the table. It's not something that we rejoice in either way in whatever party you're in. This is a very difficult thing. By the way, someone comes to you and they confront you about your sin, just realize this. They have agonized over this. They have prayed over this. They do not want to do this. They have sought counsel over this, and now they finally are going to confront you because of their concern for you. Take all of that in consideration because godly repentance in the end is certainly not going to be blaming them. I, you might rise up in your spirit at first, and, but yet that's going to have to be dealt with too, right? It's not pleasant for anybody. It wasn't pleasant for Paul. It wasn't pleasant for the Corinthians. But thankfully, God uses that to give the gift of repentance through a means of grace. And how thankful we are for society of the church by which we can sharpen each other and help each other this way. And when God gives the grace of repentance, he brings forth the fruit that then evidences itself as the John the Baptist would tell the Pharisees, bring forth fruit, meat for repentance that demonstrates that he's talking about the characteristics here, the attitude, the spirit. It's not just jumping through some hoops that somebody else is expecting you to do. It is a spirit that moves you and compels you into action from true sorrow for your sin in relation to God and the brokenness you have with your brother to the extent that you go above and beyond what anybody else would expect of you to do. This is the heart and the spirit that you need to pray for, for yourself, for all of us, because that's the right kind of spirit that is a repentant spirit, trusting the Lord. Lord, whatever it takes. That's why faith is involved in this. Lord, whatever it takes, whatever you want to do. And that's a walk by faith. How many times have we ever gone to someone and, and we had to confess a certain sin? You didn't know what the implications were going to be. And, and you might have thought that you were going to lose a, a huge thing. I don't know whatever that is, but whatever it is, you, you, you go to this person, you're fearing all the implications, and, and yet you were wanting to do this, and you were just going to be willing to do it, whatever it means. And that's the spirit of trusting God with the results. Just do what's right. And you're going to do what's right because it bothers you so much, you want to get your life right with God. You want to be right with God. I stood before this congregation and have confessed sins and asked you for forgiveness. And, and um, it's not an easy thing to do, but it's easier now than it was 25 years ago. And the more we live this way, the more we can expect that this is how God works in the gospel. 
you forgive me and, and we move on and we get on with it. But then some people are going to take that and, and they're going to find chinks in the armor to try to exploit. And, and those are the kinds of things that we have to be very careful about. As we pray every, every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's the one prayer request of all six of those that Jesus came back to comment on when he said, if you do not forgive your brother your trespasses, neither will I forgive you. He wanted us to take this to heart because living by the gospel means that we have to be both the recipients of grace and the givers of grace. Folks, this is the life we've been called to. We, it, be, it begins with repenting and believing the gospel, and it continues in our life by repenting and believing the gospel. And this is the life that we will live out. And when we sin or fall or our spirit is not right within us toward our brother, true repentance will involve a change of mind that will so compel our spirit into action and be zealous and bring forth all of these characteristics. And we are not having to sit there and judge these things. They will be self-evident. So where did Judas fail? Where, even as he was remorseful and he even confessed he betrayed innocent blood, even though he turned the 30 pieces of silver back and went and hung himself, he never turned back to his Lord that he betrayed. He never came full circle. He didn't seek the Lord's salvation. He took matters into his own hands. In the hardness of his heart, he never dealt with God. He never dealt with the one he betrayed. He never got things right with them. Peter denied Jesus, but Peter repented. Worldly sorrow is a real thing. It's a real sorrow. The world out there is sorrowful. They do all kinds of things that they later regret. And they come to the consequences of their sins and it destroys them and it eats them up and they have no Savior. They, they will have a Savior if they turn to Jesus, but they don't turn to Jesus. And they continue to get bitter and more angry at God in these things. And it's just a self-destructive path that will lead them to death sometimes quicker than other times. Some even end their life over it, and it's all very sad. Especially when they could simply, humbly come to the Lord Jesus Christ, confess their sin to Him, and seek forgiveness from Him, and know the cleansing from Him, and know the promise from Him, know the restoration from Him, know the healing from Him, know the life that comes from Him, but the hardness of their heart will not go there. There's a stubbornness and obstinance of which, on the one hand, is difficult for us to explain, and on the other hand, we all have it. It's a part of that old nature. You know what? God, for only reasons known to himself, has left some of them, many of them, in the hardness of their own hearts to get what they rightly deserve. 
and damnation. He has chosen not to intercede with his grace to grant them repentance. That's a sobering thought. Perhaps you're here today and you can testify, Oh Lord, I am thankful that you did not pass me by. But perhaps you're here today and you're not really moved very much You're dismissive of these matters, and that might be evidence that he has passed you by. I hope that that will give some gravity to your soul to turn and ask God for his mercy, because without his grace, you will not have repentance. While there are many regretful people in the world, repentance comes only by grace, and God does not owe it to us, and we cannot presume upon it. But it is a grace for which we ought to be ever grateful, ever growing in gratitude, and this is what we should seek. This is the passage that then helps us to understand the character and the spirit and the mind and the action of what godly sorrow that leads to repentance looks like. The Corinthians had blessed Paul's heart as he blessed them in this reconciliation unto the praise of the glory of God's grace of repentance. And when God brings it about, there is great liberty for our souls and great release and fellowship and peace that you will have no other way. Don't you want that? Then let's soften our hearts and let's live the rest of our life in repenting and trusting the gospel. Our gracious Father, give us this grace, we pray. We deserve it not, and yet in your mercy you have not rewarded us according to what our sins deserve. But Lord, your mercies are new every morning, and they endure For every generation, after generation, after generation, forever and ever. As we woke up today, your mercy was fresh and new. And that mercy that you have granted to us will continue to last forever. And there will be a new mercy tomorrow morning and and the next and the next. And Lord, we need this mercy. We live by these tender mercies of our God, apart from which, O Lord, who can stand? But there is forgiveness with you. And so we ask that you would continue to grow us in this character of of the gospel, this gospel character of trusting and repenting that always go hand in hand. May we grow in the fruitfulness that you bring forth in our life to experience more of the love for you and for one another, more of the joy that we have in thy salvation, more of the peace that we have with our God and with one another. It's easy for us to suffer long when we know how you suffered long with us. There could be a gentleness and a, and a growing mildness in our character as we relate one to another, knowing how mild our God has related to us. Bring it to pass, we pray, O oh Lord, in this church and 
And through our lives and in our homes and our families, our children, our grandchildren, Lord, be pleased to be gracious to us in these ways that we do not deserve. We pray this for the sake of your Son who died for us. We pray it in his name. Amen.